part of the problem with race identity is not simply that it lies about race, it lies about identity. Identities are constantly being negotiated. I'm a very different person as a professional than I am at home. And, you know, my kids would say, thank God. And my students would say, thank God. It's not like there's some core thing there that I'm carrying around. And then that core thing can then additionally be mapped on to something called race. These are constantly negotiated realities. And so race doesn't work as we want it to. The problem with a lot of diversity initiatives and increasingly the language whiteness and white fragility is it tends to reinforce the very category that we need to seriously interrogate, if not remove altogether. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott, I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. My guest today is Jonathan Tran, Associate Professor of Philosophical Theology and George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University. Jonathan is the author of The Vietnam War and Theologies of Memory, Time, Eternity, and Redemption in the Far Country, which he followed up a year later with Foucault and Theology. Most recently, in November, he released Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism from Oxford University Press. And early in 2022, we will see the release of Christianity and the Promise of Politics, which he co-wrote with his Dr. Fater Stanley Harawas, coming out of the Encountering Traditions series from Stanford University Press. Jonathan Trent, welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. It's great to be with you guys today. We are not actual acquaintances, but I saw you around the halls of Duke Divinity School when I was doing a master's in theology there uh, from 2003 to 2005. So I've been aware of your name, at least. I think I was actually in a, a seminar that Stanley Harawas taught. And I don't know if you remember, but the format, he was in such popular demand that the format back then was that there would be an inner circle and an outer circle. And the PhD students would be on the inner circle. Uh, as I recall, there would maybe be about 15 PhD students. And then ranged around the edge of the room would be some 20 or so master's students. And we weren't allowed to talk. And so I think you were one of the ones on the inner circle. I definitely deserve to be on the outer circle, if not outside the room. Yeah, I remember that. It was an absurd rather embarrassing, somewhat self-indulgent setup. I mean, Stanley was, you know, at the height of his powers, say, in the for the mid-1990s to the mid-aughts. And uh, unfortunately for all of us, we were pulled into that orbit. I mean, it, it was also amazing because, you know, him at the height of his powers is something to behold. But it issued in strange setups like this when there was, A, too many students that wanted to be around him. 
and B, really no structure to set it up. So uh, yeah, I remember that. And I remember feeling distinctly ill-prepared to be the middle. Like, why are, why am I being listened to versus these much smarter master students like Ryan? Like, <laughs> it's time to shift the circle around. Yeah, you're kind of, you were, you guys were kind of put on the same plane as, as Stanley. So what brought you to Duke and to study with Stanley Harwas? Oh, just before that, I got to tell this amazing Stanley Harawas seminar story from back in the day, because, you know, this stuff needs to be recorded in the annals of scholastic history. So one year where it was, it's like the seminar you're talking about, but it was a year long seminar on John Howard Yoder. Yoder proven so central in, in Harawas's thinking and, and that brand of theology, as I'm sure you remember. Okay, so the setting is, it's a Yoder PhD seminar meeting in the early evening. And as was sometimes the case, we had a prospective student visiting the campus. She was a Stanford senior, from what I remember. And she was looking at several elite seminaries and divinity schools. The list was Harvard Divinity School, Princeton Theological Seminary, and Duke Divinity School. And so this was her Duke Divinity School visit. Howard Watts allowed her to visit uh, his class and so she's sitting in there with a bunch of PhD students and I think just a handful of master's students. And then Harawas, you know, not one to be sensitive to such situations, calls her out and asks, you know, so where are you thinking about going after Stanford? And she said, well, I'm thinking about seminary because I'm interested in the ministry. So I'm going to be looking at Duke Divinity School, obviously, Harvard and Princeton Theological Seminary. And so Harawas then goes off on this and he says, well, you can't go to Harvard because they don't believe in God. And you can't go to PTS because they're so uptight up there that they're sphincters. If you put them on top of a flagpole, they wouldn't move an inch because their sphincters are so tight. On top of that, he actually made the little hand gesture of finger to thumb, emphasizing how tight and small their sphincters were. I don't know what happened with this person, but I know she never went to Duke Divinity School after that. I mean, with Harawas, there are so many stories like that. I mean, to this day, the, the man is just, I just had lunch with him a couple of weeks ago, and he's such a character. I mean, as I'm sure you know, too, he's also very different than his public persona. Incredibly generous, keeps up correspondences and friendships with what I imagine to be hundreds of people. Always responds to emails as a teacher, super generous, super affirming, just, just a great human being, so... And still really going strong in retirement, from what I understand. Yeah, he and I are actually writing a book on politics, and we visited, because he was visiting Dallas for some lecture he was giving, he's still sharp as a tack. I mean, he was, he was talking about the you know, some very sophisticated, complex parts of Wittgenstein. He's over 80 now. So to go back then, how did Stanley Harawas end up on your radar? And what brought you to Duke? What, who, <laughs> did you consider PTS? I did. I've considered PTS. Many times in my life, they keep on rejecting me. I'm not sure that's a comment on sphincterism. I love PTS. I have a huge amount of respect for the scholars and students there and their leadership, and they've been very generous to me in different kinds of ways. So I love that place. I just never ended up there. I became a Christian really my first year of college. I was raised outside of Christianity, outside the church. Our family had some initial run-in with the church because we're Vietnamese immigrants. We came in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War. You know, America had signed an emergency allowance, not unlike what happened in Afghanistan just a few weeks back, that allowed 10,000 Vietnamese, you know, friends of America to come over. 
And they were flooded with about 120, 140,000 Vietnamese. And so what America did is partner with major denominations to basically host families or sets of families and help kind of accommodate them, assimilate them to America. And so our family was adopted by the Lutheran Church. So that was the first few years of life in America was the Lutheran Church. I don't remember anything about the church except for two things. One, sitting in the back of Lutheran congregation and looking in front of me and seeing a, a sea of white, bluish hair, just really old folks. And secondly, even though they are older uh, folks, they're super kind to our family, super hospitable. We experienced a ton of racism in America and this kind of thing, but not at that church. At least we didn't see it. So, But I grew up outside the church. I became a Christian in college through a ministry called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a large kind of college ministry in America. Was involved in a very intensive kind of form of Christianity. Did that four years as an undergrad. Did served as a campus minister, interestingly enough, for five years after that. And then after the nine years with InterVarsity, I was utterly exhausted and had no idea what to do with the rest of my life. So I did what many Protestant Christians do when they have no idea what to do with their life. I went to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> I went asked around and people said either go to PTS or Duke Divinity School mainly because they'll give you money to go. And I said, that sounds like a great setup. And then it came down to those two schools and I went to Duke for the basketball. <laughs> it's a good reason to go. Yeah, it's a great reason to go, I thought. Uh, I mean, the two biggest figures in those days, as you remember, was Coach K and Stanley Hauerwas. And so I went for Coach K. I discovered Hauerwas early, though I had not really read anything by Hauerwas. In fact, years later, I spoke at his retirement. It was like, you know, the great honor of my life to speak at his retirement. And I admitted then that I had not really heard of Stanley Hauerwas before I got to Duke Divinity School. I'd come, come for the basketball. So, yeah, so then, you know, and he's just, a, as, as I said already, a really warm, generous person and got to know him through that. So going back to that, what you said about your family, then when you became a Christian in college, did it seem to your family that you were converting to an American religion? Or what did Christianity, what were their reference points for Christianity at the time? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, Christianity has a long history in Vietnam because of the French colonization. So Catholicism is, you know, part of the lingua franca of Vietnam, as is Buddhism and, you know, various forms of Chinese religions. So they were fairly familiar with Catholicism. They were somewhat familiar with the idea of Christianity from the Lutheran Church. But other than that, I mean, there, there really wasn't a reference point. I mean, it was almost like I was leaving the planet in their mind. They couldn't make sense of why I would become Christian. And more specifically, they couldn't figure out why I would be so serious about it, because they did have reference points of cultural Christianity that's just kind of endemic in American life. But the type of Christianity... I meant, you know, I had, as mentioned, was a really intensive one, high forms of Christian accountability, intentional communal living, financial accountability, lots of stuff on social justice. And so we had, a, you know, the reason InterVarsity and these our InterVarsity was so successful was because it was so narrow. And it, because it was narrow, it was very deep. You could say things like, this is what it means to follow Jesus and really only this. And it had things like giving up lucrative careers. Live, committing to living with people in, you know, poor parts, underserviced parts of the city, swearing off wealth, these kinds of things, issues of racial reconciliation, gender reconciliation. So they were like, well, if you're going to become Christian, why don't you just become Christians like most Americans? You know, the point where that really 
came to a head was in my sophomore year, back in the day when there used to be something called Blockbuster, people used to go rent something called VHS tapes. My friends and I decided to rent a biography VHS tape documentary about Mother Teresa. And after watching that, we decided, hey, let's go to Calcutta, India and serve with the uh, missionaries of charity, basically the poorest of the poor in Kolkata, India. And we went, you know, I was like 19, 20 years old. I can't remember. And we had no support, no infrastructure. We just had a bunch of cash that Churchfield gave us to go over there with and backpacks, which when I think back on it now is utterly nuts. You know, I remember when I was talking to my mom about going to Calcutta, she just had no idea what I was talking about. Like, You know, it's one thing to maybe serve at a soup kitchen on the weekend, especially if it's during your break. It's another thing to go to somewhere where you you could die and much less go around and hang around people who are dying, which is what, you know, the mother houses in Calcutta were about. And that was a point where she realized this dude is really serious about this. Because at that point, there was increasingly, um, there was an increasing divergence between their picture of my future and my picture of my future. I was the most academically successful in my family, the most able to probably put myself in a position to support my mom financially later on, which of course is a common thing within Asian American cultures. Ironically, my brother and sister ended up doing fabulously well in terms of their careers and are in much better positions to support my mom. And in fact, that's what happened. But back then, I think my mom thought a part of her world was dying. Those were hard conversations because my only ability to negotiate that was to try to convert her. I did have the wherewithal to, to listen, to ask questions, to honor and respect her. And that, that was kind of, the, say, the, the other side, the dark side of the narrow Christianity. So it was an important turning point for our relationship. I think, you know, they now, I think they all think I'm the poorest of the siblings, but they recognize that we're a pretty happy family. And I think that matters to them. And are you the only one who identifies as a Christian now? Yeah, still so. I think they think it's really much less bizarre, probably because I have a career that's pretty legible. At the end of the day, I'm a professor. When I profess, when I do research on, you know, that's less legible to them. But, you know, they understand professor and they understand that our kids are comfortable and safe and stuff like that. You know, we're not in Calcutta, India. So I do think there's something strange to them, you know, being native Californians (laughs) about living in a place like Waco, Texas, and they can... They think that's strange and maybe in the same way it's that Calcutta, India is strange. But for the most part, there's, you know, there's a lot of mutual love and respect. But yeah, I'm definitely the only one that's really Christian in the family. Now, I read somewhere, and feel free to pass on this question if it's too personal, but I read somewhere that you, your family, your mother and your siblings, uh, because of the urgency of the evacuation from Vietnam, had to leave without your father. Were you ever reunited with your father? So my family is from the North. In, uh, in the early 50s, the communist revolution happened. And part of what that meant was forcibly divesting the wealthy of their lands and titles and money. Our family was really wealthy. So for example, they're so wealthy that it was not common for parents to raise their own children. We, each of us had nannies. It was just part of the kind of Mandarin Northern Vietnamese culture. And so they're really wealthy. When the communists took over, they lost all that money. Another part of that culture was you had multiple wives and concubines if you were a landed elite male. And that was the case with my father. So my mom and dad were actually never married. 
I didn't know this. I mean, when you're young, obviously you're not aware of these things. I didn't really come to terms with this probably until seventh or eighth grade. I'll get to how my father got to America, but seventh or eighth grade, I met my half brothers and they're the exact same age as me. <laughs> you know, and I was like, hold on, there's something strange yet awesome about this arrangement. And then I realized, and then I, my brothers told me. So they were never married in 1975, in April of 1975. And if you want to get a good picture of this, read Viet Thanh Wins The Sympathizer, which is a brilliant novel in its own right, but its first hundred pages is about, it's about the last days of it's Saigon. So we were in Saigon. My mom was with my dad. They were not married. My dad was traveling, doing kind of Southern South Vietnamese democratic stuff. He was involved in politics and they were married. They had, it was three of us, four of us kids. That's all. I'll tell the part about something else in a second. But the four of us kids and we were in Vietnam, Saigon, like a lot of folks kind of just waiting out the war. And so the war starts quickly coming to an end in the 70s. My aunt married a naval intelligence officer, and he was our way out. When the war was ending, everyone was scrambling to get out. And, you know, again, read Wynn's book, The Sympathizer, to get a sense of just how desperate this was, uh, hence the analogies to Afghanistan more recently. Well, in our case, my aunt rounded up all her sisters, including my mom, to take them to the airport and go to America. But my mom refused to go without my father, who was out of town. And so my aunt, it was basically effectively saying goodbye to her sister and my mom saying goodbye to the rest of her extended family. But my mom refused to go. My aunt at the last minute decided to leave her spot in line at the airport. Remember, people were like selling their kids to get out of Vietnam. She leaves her spot, goes into Saigon and pulls my mom and us kicking and screaming to the airport, puts us on a plane and, you know, the rest is history for our family. My aunt just passed away, so I had an occasion to talk about this in, in the eulogy. I just think what our lives would have been like, you know, and not necessarily worse. I just, it just would have been obviously very, very different. Anyways, my father did not have that ticket out. He was elsewhere in the country. And so he was imprisoned by the communists because of his Democratic Party work. And so he was prison. You know, the term I think then was educated re-educated. And then eventually he came over with the subsequent waves of Vietnamese folks, what was often called the boat people. Uh, and when I first saw him, this is in the early 80s, we, they, they had been apart for, you know, five years, I believe, when he finally came to America. Uh, there was, I don't think there was really any desire for them to get back together. They hadn't both moved on. And then he had his other family, which I mentioned. But when I first met my father, when he came to America, he was incredibly poor. Right. I mean, you can imagine. And then years later, he got increasingly wealthy, like ridiculously wealthy. He would drive, I remember he drove like a 560 AMG Mercedes, which at the time was a $120,000 car, which, you know, it's significantly more now. He would give me $100 bills whenever we departed. And I had no idea where this was coming from. And then he passed away my junior year. We had, we had this on-again, off-again relationship. He only spoke like Chinese, French, and Vietnamese, and I only spoke, you know, English. So we never had much of a relationship. But when he passed away, I had no idea how he passed away. And my brother, one of my half-brothers, told me he died in prison. He had been involved in forms of organized crime and this kind of thing. So, yeah, so our, our family life is just really intense, you know. Also, when we first got to America, the huge tragedy, my brother and I were crossing the street. I should just tell viewers, this is a, this is a hard story. 
my brother and I were crossing the street. He was six. I was five. Uh, we had been in America just a couple of years and uh, he was killed by a car right in front of me. And, you know, sometimes I ask my mom, like, how did you survive that? You had already left Vietnam, your homeland, your dreams. You get to America, to a strange place that it wasn't a choice migration. It was a, it, she was a war refugee. So I often, I often ask her, you know, how did you survive that? And, you know, I mean, there's no words. And your first book was about Vietnam, right? And its place in American history and culture, and particularly thinking theologically about that place. At the same time, you've characterized your work, at least more recently, as genealogical. It's interesting to me because many theological genealogies of modernity point to watershed moments in the late Middle Ages or the early modern period, and specifically in Europe. Your work is geographically located elsewhere. It's post-Enlightenment history. And you've studied a part of the world that just doesn't show up in any of these prominent theological genealogies. So, and you've done so from the perspective of globalized liberal democracy and capitalism. So I'm interested in whether you see any continuity between the theological genealogies of modernity that were quite prominent at Duke when you were studying there and the theological genealogies you've pursued. Yeah, another great question. I mean, in some ways, the reality of Vietnam in the first book was really about the kind of legacy, post-colonial legacies of uh, Vietnam. The French were very interesting kinds of colonizers. They're often referred to as clumsy colonizers because they actually sought to believe that they could be friends with those they colonized. And, you know, to this day, my relatives, my Vietnamese aunties, they talk glowingly about the colonial period. They talk glowingly about the colonial period in the same way some of them speak glowingly about Trump. Uh, you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon that was somewhat reported upon, but the Vietnamese voted mostly, a lot of Vietnamese people voted for Trump, probably because on the one hand, the scourge of uh, state communism and its violence and the way it upended my family's life. Other end, I think that Trump carried something of that colonial mystique. And my family, you know, was from the aristocracy. And so in the same way that Trump was attracted to, say, a 19, a largely mythical 1950s America, I'm guessing my family was attracted to Trump because he represented something like a European aristocracy or colonial mythology. So when I thought about, you know, when I think about the Vietnam book, it's really the attempt to think about the long-term legacy of that colonial post-colonial legacy, especially as it's carried through American imperialism. And so the book was a genealogy on how time is imagined in the American psyche and what that does for memory. The interesting thing about the Vietnam War was it was the first war we lost, uh, quote unquote. And that's quite a thing for a country that not only tells its history through its wars, right, revolution, civil war, World War I, World War II, but through its history of war victories. So that when you lose a war and you lose it in that fashion in a way that's often associated with aristocracy, I mean, with atrocity and imperialism, then in some sense, your storytelling comes to an end. You're not sure what to say. And that was the legacy of the Vietnam uh, War. And if you look at, say, the history of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial itself was highly controversial because how do you memorialize something you lost? You know, how do you imagine it? And, you know, so... 
in some sense, the turn to Vietnam and the turn in this most recent book on race, American race and racism, is an extension of the kind of um, narrative, what's often called a narratives of decline or genealogies of the West. You know, Vietnam is a direct descendant of that colonial legacy, interestingly intimate ways in terms of my family's politics. So you kind of see the sense in which the totality or at least the reach of European modernity and its enforcement modes of violence on other people and how people make do. Uh, I mean, there's a kind of agency in claiming the French mystique and there's a kind of agency in claiming Trump, not an agency that we progressive liberals want to admit as much, uh, but it's part of the forms of subjectivity available on the other side of crushing forms of domination. Yeah, it seems to me that, you know, when you were studying at Duke, John Howard Yoder was a major figure in the, the Duke school and Yoder... Yoder's main genealogy is the genealogy of Constantinian Christianity, uh, that when Christianity got a toehold on state power through Constantine's conversion, that completely changed and corrupted Christianity. And, and so this is a, it's a pre-modern genealogy, but it strikes me that what you're describing is in some ways an undoing or at least the, the, the beginning of an unraveling, at least the, the victoriousness of that particular compromise. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Yoder once said, I mean, and, and of course, you know, as a reader of Yoder, I always need to acknowledge the, the incredible forms of violence against women that he perpetrated and somewhat justified through his theology. But there's a lot of Yoder that is hard to find somewhere else in terms of his insights on this question. And you're bringing up the Constantinian through line in his thinking is, is a good example because it's a very powerful rubric through which to understand not just Christian theology, but political life in general. Yoder had an interesting line where he said, when the church was being persecuted in its early years, and it wasn't systematically persecuted, it was occasionally persecuted, but when it was being persecuted it would have been important for some part of Christianity, some Christians to say, you know, it's supposed to be like this. That's kind of what Christianity promises and demands of its followers. Without saying that, then the temptation was that there was some other triumphalist narrative and it had to do with um, taking over the empire. Then that became the picture of Christian discipleship or Christian faithfulness, that God would be faithful insofar as what God converted the emperor and the emperor converted the empire and, and all of its pagans and heathen edges at the edges of the imperium. And so far as we didn't recognize that because why people were being crushed underfoot, there's naturally a fantasy for domination as a response to subjugation. And I think that's what Yoder is really good on, uh, the genealogy of that project. And so you're right. So then you push that out, say, a thousand years, and you build out an empire that expands the range of that vision of Christianity, its triumphalism, and the ontotheological identification of God with human affairs. And, you know, what you see, what I describe as the clumsy Roman Catholic French version of that is that in decline the attempt to hold on to that legacy in the same way that, say, my aunts might hold on to a, mis a colonial mystique or some people might do so with Donald Trump 
to operate in the world as Hauerwas often says, as if you're going to get out of this life alive, or is at least what Christianity and maybe the part that Yoder says we should have highlighted is the recognition that that's not the case, that you're going to get out of this life without having to depend on God in some serious ways. The Constantinian temptation is to rely, rely on forms of uh, statecraft and state mobilization and its forms of coercion and violence that would insulate you from those kinds of commitments. Ideas have consequences. That's an axiom of a certain kind of intellectual history. And it's an intellectual history that's been, I think, very influential in modern theology. You know, one example would be radical orthodoxies pointing to the univocal metaphysics of John Duns Scotus and, and then basically tracing a line from that to the reductive metaphysics of the capitalist modernity. But when it comes to other kinds of, you know, if bad ideas have bad consequences, one of the things that Christian theology has to offer, it seems to me, is an account of sin. And when it comes to race, you emphasize that bad ideas are not where racism begins. Uh, really, it begins with disordered desire, with a lust for domination, with sin. But sin seems to be missing from even the very materialist, practice-oriented genealogy of Foucault and, and his disciples. So Foucaultianism is not going to say ideas have consequences, as if there could be free-floating ideas. It's a very, not Marxist materialist, but it's, it's, it's very much focused on the material realities in which human life subsists. And yet, there's still not sin, it seems to me. So in your view, you've written a book on Foucault and, and theology. Where does the Christian doctrine of sin or of original sin come into contact with Foucaultian genealogy? Yeah, I mean, Foucault at this point has proven to be more of a master of contemporary thought than I think could have ever been anticipated. I mean, there was, at, for a time, I believe, you know, I heard some reference like Foucault's the most mentioned academic across uh, the humanities and social sciences uh, in the English-speaking world. It's quite a reality. But I think downstream, the Foucault that's been adopted is, is a kind of half of Foucault or early Foucault, which is the Foucault where it's about power vis-a-vis -vis domination and oppression. Uh, whereas Foucault later on, especially around the histories of sexuality, the point of pointing out power was to point out agency. So power is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. The point of that isn't to say that domination is everywhere. I think he thought, obviously, that's the case. It's to say that that also means that forms of agency is everywhere insofar as power courses through everything. And so you have in Foucault an account not only of oppression and domination, say, and the genealogies that go with them. Uh, you, you think of the, the paradigmatic essay on Nietzsche, genealogy and morality. But it's also to say that right in front of us, we are always more powerful than we, rec we may recognize. And so the, the histories of sexuality, especially the second, third, and now fourth volumes, was to lay claim to the, the ready-at-hand options for humans under the terms of oppression. And some of these couldn't help but take up the forms of oppression out of which they are emerging, but that's not all they were. And so I think I got from the University of Chicago's Arnold Davidson the translator of Lachafuku's work, uh, what he took to be the natural term from 
Michelle Foucault to Stanley Cavell. And that's what I've done. I finished the Foucault book and then I, you know, I think I wrote it in about a year and I quickly turned to Cavell and I did studying Cavell for about a decade now. And Cavell is a very specific reader of Wittgenstein. Yeah, I think Cavell will go down as America's greatest philosopher, or at least the most American of philosophers in the line of, of Emerson. And Cavell really taught me to understand human speech and language and what it says about the human condition in a way that helped me think in terms of how language operates. So go back to your initial, the, the opening part of your the question, which is something about um, ideas having power and consequence. Uh, they do insofar as they are conventionalized within material realities and institutions and structures and systems. It's neither the idea that ideas in themselves have consequences, nor do material realities proceed without ideas or concepts tied to them. Rather, they are co-emerging properties. That means it's then very, very difficult to pull out concepts, right? It's not as easy as, you know, let's just let's just go after better metaphors or better concepts because they're structured in, uh, in the language of the historical sociologist, Audrey Smedley, they're conventionalized. And that makes them very, very difficult to challenge, uh, very difficult because they seem to not only make sense of some people's oppression, it may, they make sense of the entire world that we live in. That was the terrors of American slavery and racism, is that the racist ideas made sense uh, of what we were doing to people. It made sense of our economy. It made sense of our future. To It wouldn't be so easy as, say, taking out certain concepts and replacing them with more beneficial ones. The great psychoanalyst Jonathan Lear at University of Chicago has this amazing book called Radical Hope, in which he talks about uh, a Native American indigenous folks for whom the buffalo was the chief totem, the primary symbol, the conventionalized structure through which everything existed. Well, white people came along and just slaughtered the buffalo. The problem with for these people, for these people was the one concept they had to organize their world not simply in terms of, both in terms of the practical realities of their lives, but also how they talked about their lives was taken away. And so what he calls radical hope is the ability for people to forge new identities in the midst of what he calls for Heidegger won't collapse, which is what happens when our, when we lose our concepts. Inversely, it's to say that the reason injustice procures and it makes, it's just so damn hard to get past these structures is they're conceptualized all around us. Right, good. And so then how to re-describe Cavell's account of language and structure of reality in terms of sin and redemption? I know nothing about Cavell's theology, but you know, but to go back to Foucault, it, it, there's no account of an original order and an original piece. There just always has been that power courses through everything, it structures everything, um, and it can be structured for domination, it can also be structured for liberation. But there's kind of no trajectory to that, and there's no eschatology to that. So It's hard to tell which is which. Right, right, yeah. So how do you then give a Christian theological account of what you just described Cavell's uh, picture being? Yeah, I mean, in Cavell, well, Cavell makes some claims. I mean, Cavell's interesting. He's raised a secular Jew uh, and has some really interesting things. He had some, he passed away just in the last few years. He had some really interesting things to say about theology. 
So for, you know, just to give you a sense of the relationship, Rowan Williams, who I consider, along with a couple other folks, one of the most important theologians in the world, when Cavell came to town, Rowan Williams was in the front seat. And same thing with what Rowan Williams gave lectures in America, Cavell was just terribly interested in what he had to say. So there's a friendliness and openness to Christian theology. But, you know, for the most part, he was a secular philosopher. But Cavell has an account of a kind of fall in his narrative, the story he tells, which has to do with a failure to make a distinction in modern philosophy. And specifically, he means analytic philosophy, the distinction between um, our metaphysical finitude and an intellectual lack. We consistently confuse the two. And you can map this onto a Christian theological account of idolatry. Um, that is, humans are created and therefore our finite doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean we lack something. Think about the story of Genesis, where what the serpent says to Adam and Eve is that you lack something. What God has provided here is insufficient. Uh, you need greater forms of knowledge. And Cavell's terribly interested in this human tendency to what he describes as chafing against our own skin. For uh, Christian terms, it would be rejecting the terms of creation. Now, in terms of the, the account of racial capitalism I give in this most recent book, it's a, it's a very different kind of story, but it's still mapped onto exactly what you described earlier as an account of desire. So in the racial capitalist framework, it begins with black Marxists who say something like, well, of course, slavery and racism isn't about us. So we're not going to enter into recitals where we're trying to prove our humanness. That's not the issue. It's clearly about forms of domination and extraction that that need to be justified. And, you know, and, and so racial capitalism is the way in which, say, political economy utilizes and facilitates race language to create a, you know, certain state of affairs that just goes on in perpetuity in American life, though in different forms, of course. Well, that's to me, is a theological story, or at least that maps onto a theological story. And, and what is that story? That humans were created part of God's creation in sheer gratuity. Uh, God created us not because God needed something, but God created us out of the overflow of the Trinitarian life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means we live contingently, going back to uh, Cavell's notion of finitude. We live contingently, based, you know, basically on, dependent on God's grace. What happens, though, is when we turn away from that, then we look for sources to sustain us that are not God, because God requires two uh, dependent of a relationship. So we seek to depend on ourselves, which then turns us to sources of sustenance um, that can only be procured through forms of domination of other human beings, and then domination of the earth. Those are continuous realities in my account. In other words, I think there's an obvious and often underappreciated analogy between what we do to people and what we do to non-human creatures. Um, and so what we're experiencing in the world around us, right, we're headed to 3% global warming, which will prove utterly disastrous what 1.5 was not exactly going to be a picnic. These forms of domination are the kind of uh, imploding of a creation that is meant to be linked into God that now no longer turns to God for its sustenance. What it does then is look for other sources to meet a desire that can only be met infinitely in the life of God. The other part of that story, and again, this maps back onto the Black Marxist story, is that we're not so evil that we don't recognize that there's a problem with our evil. And so there's a moral psychology to need to write, get a fig leaf and cover ourselves. 
And the fig leaf that covers over this story of domination is, say, modes of ontological conceptualization that say, well, I can do that to that person because that person is not really a person. Uh, we can do that to the earth, right? Because the earth lacks reason or God created us in a system of domination. So these are stories definitely a fall that I think map pretty clearly on to what's often understood as the biblical narrative of what happens when desire is untethered from the end to which it's fully fulfilled. All right. So, uh, Jonathan, you have a new book coming out about race. Uh, can you tell us wh what it's called and when it will appear? Yeah, the book is called Asian Americans in the Spirit of Racial Capitalism, and it comes out with Oxford in a couple weeks. So will there be race in heaven? I don't think so. My book argues that race is a mode of ideological justification used to facilitate material domination and exploitation. In my account, racism works rather like this. At one point, I describe it as not leading, but following. I don't mean a kind of ontological ordering. I wouldn't want to split the difference that way. But I mean, for most people, the racism they participate in is it that they operate in the world with, say, really terrible ideas about people of color. Rather, it's a much more nefarious because much more subtle uh, moral psychology. I drive around my city. Uh, you drive around Pittsburgh, what have you. And there are certain parts of the city uh, that are obviously underserviced. They have less access to education, healthcare, property values are constantly being manipulated by state government, city government, et cetera, et cetera. And I say to myself, well, that makes sense. They're brown. That helps me understand what's going on. What that alleviates for me from doing is ask a question like this. Why is our system so screwed up that there's a lot of poor, oppressed people who are consistently being politically disenfranchised? Uh, what's wrong with the system? So instead of asking that question, we blame the people suffering it. It's the ultimate form of gaslighting. And so what American racism is, is this writ large built out over an entire political economy that birthed modern day capitalism. And, you know, what's often called the histori historians of capitalism, historians that emerged largely in the last 20 years, somewhat associated with, say, the 1619 Project, these historians have shown Whatever we mean capitalism is, and, and let's say it's very specific technologies around things like accountancy, the financialization of loan structures, international trade, that this grew up at the same time as American chattel slavery. In, in the stories we often tell, it often goes the other way. First, we had an immature form of late feudalism that relied on forms of slavery and property and labor. Uh, and then later on, we got mature and we entered into a true market system called capitalism. No, historians have shown that these actually are the same thing, right? And so what we, the practices of accountancy owe their allegiances because what slave owners created ledger books so they can figure out how to extract the most value from their slaves. The historian Edward Baptist, who many people know from his book, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, tells a story of the parallels between, say, the debt panic of 1837 that directly led to the Civil War and the Great Recession of 2008. These are similar structured um, forms of financial speculation. And so capitalism emerges at the same time that we produce a world of chattel slavery. And so what I try to do in the book is tell this story uh, and then how race is then used in a very kind of sophisticated moral psychology of, of where people who, as I, er, in my earlier description, whose desires are extraordinarily disordered, 
uh, and are dominating the world as a function, as a product of that, give offer a kind of sheen of respectability, a veneer of respectability by saying it's really about black and brown people or about, say, yellow people who are coming from China as, uh, you know, forms of labor. So that's what I try to tell a story of in the book is, is how racism operates as what, um, you know, the black radical tradition is long called racial capitalism. So I fully gather then that there won't be racism uh, in heaven. Race, though, according to our current understanding of identity, of racial identity, is a good. At least that's what our university diversity training sessions teach us to hold. And so if my racial identity, um, if my race contributes to my identity, and my identity is the means by which I am present as a person in society, why wouldn't my race go with me to heaven where I'm also going to need to be present as a person in society. And for all we know, my, our individual histories won't be erased uh, when we go to heaven. So I'll still be an Irish American to a certain extent in heaven or not. Yeah. So the, the force of your question is you get that there's not, on my account, you get that there's not going to be racism in heaven, but won't there still be race in heaven? At least according to a certain way of thinking. And this would be the idea of, say, university diversity initiatives that claim race as a good and therefore should be pursued. So I think my answer is I don't think so. I mean, in my account, if race is primarily a fiction used to cover over ideologically these baseline forms of domination, then it's not clear on the other side what race positively comes out as. It's not like in my genealogy that there's some core that can then be kind of re- rehabilitated in our conceptual thinking. But your larger point is still still holds, uh, which is, aren't there modes of identification that are materially not only accurate, but appropriate? And the answer is, of course. It's just that they don't reduce to what we call race. So in most of the world, there's all kinds of ways that we are tied to place, um, to people, to language, ethnicities, to histories, to experiences. In America, all those forms of differentiation, all those forms of identification, all of a sudden become about race, which it may work for some communities, but that, I mean, this goes back to your earlier point about what do we do when we imagine the world not from the context of Europe and its um, idolization of, say, white identity, what about Asian Americans? In what ways can we talk about Asian Americans as a race? It's too diffusive a reality. It's, I mean, it names a massive geographical region with hundreds of different types of ethnicities and languages and experiences and histories to call all those people a race and to fill it with certain kinds of substance. Does it capture the historical material reality, the empirical realities of those people, but also tends to bend out of shape any working notion of identity. I mean, part of the problem with race identity is not simply that it lies about race, it lies about identity. I mean, any of us know, I mean, and this doesn't take that much kind of, you know, literary analysis of how identity works or psychological analysis, is I'm a very different person as a professional than I am at home. And, you know, my kids would say, thank God, and my students would say, thank God. So identities are constantly being negotiated. Uh, this is, again, a holdover from my, or- my commitments to Stanley Cavell and the, and the tradition of ordinary language philosophy. 
Uh, it's not like there's some core thing there that I'm carrying around, and then that core thing can then additionally be mapped on to something called race. These are constantly negotiated realities. In America, for some reason, probably as I argue in the book, because of the way our political economy works and its conventionalization and certain forms of conceptualization, it's race. In a way that other people may say, yeah, of course I have a race, but I also have a family. And I'm also from this geography and I'm also from this neighborhood. And so race doesn't work as we want it to. Your point about, and I, I'm guessing your point about DEI is, is you know, not full-throated. The problem with a lot of diversity initiatives, especially often says who DEI, increasingly the language whiteness and white fragility, is it tends to reinforce the very category that we need to seriously interrogate, if not remove altogether. I don't live any, under any delusion that we're going to enter into a kind of post-racial fantasy. That's neither achievable nor is that desirable because we have to have some forms of understanding and marking identity and difference. I just don't think race can be one of them. It's too tied to a political economy of commodification. I mean, we already, we already see this. Every time we find some kind of race, we find ways to add value to it, commodify it, and make a movie about it. Uh, you know, lately it's been things like, you know, Asian American culture is Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings and or, you know, crazy rich Asians, as if those people tell the story of most Asian Americans, right? So... So we need to find ways to mark difference and identity, but not ways in which they're tied habitually in our culture. I mean, habitually, continuously, persistently to put modes of political economic domination. That is very hard to do. That's a statement both about the porousness of our identity, but equally a statement about how powerful late capitalism is. A related concept is, well, there's a kind of anti-racist orthodoxy that says we'll never be post-racial uh, and we'll never be colorblind. And those, those two key words, I think, really are charged, especially, uh, especially right now. And it seems to me that many times when Christians talk about race, they get their wires crossed with this aversion to the language of post-racialism and colorblindness because Christians, you know, they... They start, they start from the Apostle Paul. There is neither um, Jew nor Greek, you know, male nor female, slave nor free. And they, so they start with this eschatological idea that could very easily be summed up as, you know, race-free or colorblind. But when Christians apply theological ethics to questions of race, that eschatology be, becomes an object of hope. And it seems to me that that can often come across as denying the racialism and color-based racism in the city of man. How are we supposed to, is there still a place for the language of colorblindness and post-racialism when talking about, you know, our life in the saculum and not just what will be in heaven? Yeah, this is an excellent question. So there's a theological problem with post-racialism or colorblindness, and then there's a material one, and, and they're, you know, they're interconnected. I'll try to say how. So the theological problem has been well laid out by teachers of ours, you know, the brilliance of Jim Cameron Carter and Willie James Jennings, in the former case, race uh, theological analysis, and Jennings' magisterial um, in the Christian imagination. And there the idea of post-racialism maps onto a, a European Enlightenment notion of kind of universality. What it really boils down to is what we might call non-anti-particularity. 
So what's the problem with people of color? They're too committed to their particularity. They can't get out of their own skin, literally, and you know, think with their mind as elite managed, you know, gentry European men can. You know, can think simply through reason. And so, insofar as they have bodies, uh, and therefore they have races. So they've shown how that's not only politically problematic, but it's problematic on theological grounds. It's a form of anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. It's a brilliant argument, and a listener should definitely consult those texts. The practical problem is to deny the reality, to say be colorblind, is to take off the table the ability to chart the ways in which racialization works. In some ways, if you look at our structures and systems, say around housing, you have to work backwards and you'll see how racialization works. To take racialization off the table is to deny not simply to basically blind oneself from how the material realities work out, say in housing, say with redlining in the past and, and what has been recently being called, you know, forms of uh, a problematic inclusion within housing markets. But it's also to then remove, you know, it's to blind yourself from those realities and then remove ourselves from processes of redress that will probably have to be directed back to people who have been disenfranchised by the very systems. This is a kind of tragic reality because we need to both keep race in mind to redress racism. So that that's one part of it. The other part, though, is is there more that race identity can positively come to other than to track systems of inequality versus of racialization? I don't know the answer to this question. My inclination is increasingly to say no. When I think about Asian Americans, I can't, it's hard to think of any way into that, namely because race isn't quite named for Asian Americans, you know, what we might hope it to name. So yeah, so there's not a colorblind society and there's not a colorblind form of re uh, redress. What I say in the book is if race is used to justify domination, then what we, we need to do is de-racialize, quit thinking in terms of racial forms of analysis and try to think about the larger political economy that produce race, which means taking account of how race works and how people are raced. Your picture of us getting to heaven would mean that I try to imagine and remember and honor the ways in which Ryan's been racialized as a white person, and you do as well for me racialized as an Asian American. But I think that's a little different than from saying that something essential about who you are. It's part of who you are. And negotiating the differences, I think, what it means to acknowledge these realities. Thanks. So last year, Syndicate, which is this wonderful online forum on books and ideas, uh, came up with this idea to publish a report on the state of theology, which is pretty bold, and but also very attractive. That that somebody would would think that this is this is uh, a take that we need to we need to pause and assess the state of theology. Uh, but it characterized academic theology as primarily a critical and activist endeavor. And this is quite different from the role of academic theology from through much of Christian history. It's also of a piece with the broad shift in the academic humanities towards critique and activism, or at least political agitation. I see this as potentially hastening the marginalization of theology in the mainstream academy because it's competing on other disciplines' turf. What role can theology play in the university and the academy more broadly that's not just a different flavor of critique and political agitation? Yeah, I mean, this gets to the future of the academy to me, the future of the humanities and certainly the future of theology. We get to live in these interesting times. Moment where we're deeply, rightly, it's a good thing, deeply self-conscious of our history. And that history has uh, exacted un 
told forms and revolutions of violence and domination of people of difference, uh, oftentimes people of color, but certainly sexual, gender minorities, um, you know, so on and so forth. And so very often done in the name of truth, if not God, uh, in the name of reason, you know, so we can trace out the various genealogies and figure out the ways the ontic theology is operating into these occurrences. But what that makes us, that uh, with that awareness comes a very significant posture towards the human life. And that posture is increasingly one of critique, that we become little masters of suspicion. This is a pretty difficult thing for Christian theology. Christian theology, while it has modes of resistance and revolution as part of its repertoire, the primary key of Christian theology is proclamation, um, not critique. Critique is part of that. It helps us understand the world in which we praise God or honor creation or enjoy friendships, say. But if our fundamental posture is critique, and not critique simply of the world, but critique of even the posture of proclamation, then I think we've given up the game. I think this is true not only in theology, though. This is true in literary studies. If you look at the work of Rita Feltsky, as I'm sure you know her work, and you didn't also study with her. And Feltsky, uh, avid reader of Stanley Cavell, by the way, Feltsky is worried that, in you know, as you know better than I, in American literature, that the posture of critique undermines the work of criticism. Criticism is a posture, what she calls an attachment to text textuality, uh, that cannot be reduced simply to critique, to make us little masters of suspicion. Uh, and she worries that we've lost the language of how we appreciate and honor the forms of account, uh, commitment that we always already have, that we can't help but uh, render them suspicious at level as, as if that's the primary mode of intellectual life. I think there's something similar going on in theology. How do we give praise and honor to the world that we think we've been given as a gift, while also acknowledging the ways that we've run amok uh, and acted violently against it? How do we retain our critical edge while also saying that, at least for Christians, our postures towards witness, proclamation, uh, that God uh, has the last word in our world? I think this is a really difficult thing. People in that syndicate edition, especially Sarah Coakley, I think that's the question she's asking. And, you know, Sarah's also writing a book, uh, her second volume of her systematics is on race. Uh, and so we've talked a bunch about this question. And if the critical mode is all that we're able to um, come up with, if that's all that we have left, then that leaves very little re uh, room for many of the forms in which we are, as, as embodied creatures, inhabit this earth. We will have become too clever for ourselves. And, and I think maybe this is part part of your point about Foucault. And this is why I mean that Foucault's turned out to be more of a master than probably he ever anticipated uh, or, or we ever anticipated, is if you read everything as oppression versus forms of selfhood and agency, uh, if it's just oppression, then there's very little room for any other kind of voice. Uh, and you're right then. If Christianity then is going to just be another form of activism, well, it's always going to be a paler form of activism. It's always going to be suspicious on the very grounds of activism uh, if activism is just simply tied to critique. I mean, there, there's there's no better target than Christianity. Uh, it certainly has made itself a target. So this is a difficult set of questions for the future of the humanities. It's a really difficult set of questions for theology, how we retain the voice of proclamation. And, and you know, I imagine if people have a problem with my book is in the second half after I try to diagnose the realities and try to be deeply critical about racial capitalism, I actually try to proclaim an alternative. And it has to do with 
Christian communities in forms of radical dispossession and solidarity. And I try to read this as from the perspective of those Christians who are, you know, ordinary, regular Christians, not armed or encumbered by theology and professional academia. They just think this is what God has called them to. And my worry is that the critique will be a basic suspicion of that, that God doesn't do calling. And people's lives who are given to forms of generosity and charity, who offer different idioms of political economy in of itself, because it's not just critical, because it seeks to proclaim or witness, that will be rendered suspicious. And I think if we do that, then we will have given up the game, not simply of theology, but of the humanities. Right. So where is good theology happening that's not in the mainstream theology or religion academy? I'm thinking of the, you talked about these communities where it's a kind of lived theology, where you see the way your book is structured, uh, it's part ethnography. And it seems that in order to begin to talk about the good news in the context of, of race and liberation, you had to go outside the academy and you had to do qualitative interviews and you had to I'm not sure exactly what you did to be so immersed in in these communities, but I was thinking maybe we could conclude by just talking a little bit about the theology that you encountered in, was it the Bayview neighborhood in San Francisco or outside of San Francisco? Yeah, so there's been a turn across the humanities that's increasingly orientation toward the social sciences. Some of that's not good. I think we could all agree that it's driven by, you know, material commitments of the university under extraordinary pressures. But a lot of it is good because what it does is it offers us a kind of return to regular, ordinary life. And so people not equipped or encumbered, as I said earlier, with theology are just kind of living life and trying to be faithful human beings. And they, insofar as the, com- the community I looked at with, you know, which is a lot of folks who graduated from places like Cal Berkeley and Stanford and UCLA, they got in their heads that Jesus loves the poor and oppressed and makes Jesus's life with those. That's just the doctrine of the incarnation and that they ought to do other, they, that they ought to do similarly. And so they gave up lucrative careers. Um, you know, these are, so this is Silicon Valley, mind you. And so they've given up and entered into forms of solidarity largely out of reception from black churches that welcomed in them into their communities. And these are, these are not Black Christians? These are mostly Asian Americans who have been racialized in their own way and have suffered the forms of racism. And so they gave up their, you know, what's often called my, model minority lives and committed to living lives more justly with other people. They created, out of this church, they created a software company because a lot of them are electrical engineers, computer scientists. And... From the software company, which makes money, it is for-profit industry. I mean, it's a for-profit entity. They redistribute the money from the software company to the neighborhood to support local businesses, neighbors, microloan set, uh, networks. And then another thing they did is they created the school um, because of the inequality of education ac- educational access in the city of San Francisco. So you have a little what I call microecology, and I wanted to know what's the theology? How do they talk about what they're doing? How does it make sense? So if I said that the problem with our racial capitalist system is it's conventionalized, that is, it's constantly trying to conceptualize the world through categories of race to make sense of material inequality, well, then what you could think of as this community is doing is the converse. 
They're trying to give language to a different world, but that language will only make sense materially. It will only make sense if it's materially instantiated um, and lived out and vice versa. Only if you live out, then do you reach for concepts to make sense of what you're doing. So I, the description I give is something called deep economy, the economy of the world tied into the divine economy, uh, where justice is natural to the world because justice is natural to God who gave us the world. They don't use that language. They use the, the, the simple language of worship and songs that most of us know and the way they read scripture and the common life that they have with one another and their neighbors. But when you step into the ethnography, you're trying to make, you're trying to say what I think most people would say, which is, well, this is really amazing. It doesn't quite make sense. So let's try to make sense of it. Then you piece it together. And so you, I offer in this book a complex theology, but they just live it. And, and that's what I mean by conventionalization. And that's what I mean by saying, you know, if, if racial capitalism works as I've described it, then we need to de-racialize so that we can deflate the power of racialization and its forms of justification domination. But we need other idioms of political economy, other ways of imagining our, for our lives more ordered towards justice. And what I found in this extraordinary community is people who are living in a really unique way and have some concepts that help them understand it. And my guess is that there's a, there's, there's a bit of this going on, but it hides under, you know, it's under the underbelly of the whole different set of concepts and material realities. At close to the end of the book, you enter into conversation with Afro-pessimism. And uh, this is a disposition towards the evils of race that begins an account of reality with the evil of racism. And because of that, it, it kind of has to end there. And so according to Afro-pessimist theory, any effort to improve, to deracialize, as, as you say, um, is doomed to just reproduce the beginning and the end. It's doomed to the same, even if this is the most progressive or, or radical effort. What can, you know, it, it seems possible that a software company that is making profits and funneling those profits back into um, a neighborhood of uh, racially marginalized people could very easily reproduce some of the same patterns of, of oppression. How does a Christian theology of hope, you know, this particular community that you worked with, how does their theology of hope get out of that particular bind? In some ways, we don't know that they will. Uh, and it's not simply that they can reinforce the same concepts and forms of marginalization and domination. It's possible they'll make it worse. So the Afro-pessimist uh, view is that the modern world isn't accidentally anti-Black, it's necessarily anti-Black, that the ontological structuring, as they would put it, orients out of an anti-Blackness. So it's not an accident of material history, as I would argue, uh, like an outgrowth of material history. Uh, it's necessary to the system to be anti-Black. That means, as you, would, as you just uh, nicely put, that even our efforts to turn back anti-Blackness will further entrench anti-Blackness. Um, so Practically, that would mean something like the attempt to, quote, educate people would just introduce further forms of enslavement and domination. It is a totalizing and utterly brilliant narrative and description. Uh, there's no way out of it, and there's not supposed to be. That's the point of the ontological framing, uh, right? Ontologically, you know, as, as I quote 
someone in the book, there are metaphysics and there are metaphysics. And this is, a, this is an ontological picture of the world as all ontologies are, as totalize it. But then the question is, is what kind of politics are we talking about then? Because then it would be a version of saying, well, then what do we do? If the entirety of Western civilization and say all white people are not simply, you know, just not, not as an accident of history, but as white people there to dominate and not, they don't simply dominate, they dominate for the sake of pleasure. What's, what are our politics? And so the, the, your question about hope is, is both a Christian question, but a question about politics in general. In my account, uh, hope isn't some expectation that will, something will turn out. And that's why you kind of push in those end, push towards that end. It's much more grounded than that. Hope is the hope that whatever you're doing will yield some kind of benefit without any guarantee that it will without even much evidence that it will. You do it because you feel like it's inclining towards goodness or truth or beauty, even against the majority of reports that it may actually go the other way. And so here, the reason, you know, the reason I bring in Afro-pessimism in the book is because I want to put as much pressure on what this church and community is doing conceptually as I can and to see if they can answer those pressures and challenges. Because I understand the optics. The optics are Christians are have done a lot of bad stuff in the name of a lot of good stuff. And so anytime we see this, our critical posture comes out. So I introduced the strongest version of that uh, through Afro-pessimism, which I already said I think is utterly brilliant. And I try to show through a series of critiques by mostly African-American scholars why the Afro-pessimist claim empties out into a kind of blank form of politics. I want to imagine politics as putting one foot in front of the other and hoping that every next step that we take yields enough reasons to go on that we can, but open to the possibility that it will yield reasons to stop. But you keep on going until you run out of reasons. What you can't do from the beginning is guarantee that you're going to get there or guarantee that you're not going to get there. That's what politics seems to me to be about in its most radical democratic form, is that we put one foot in front of the other with other people, and we try to make do with our lives. And there's going to be tons of struggle and tons of problems. Uh, and we go forward as long as we can. So what I understand that church community do is a lot of goodwill people are doing. Try to put one foot in front of the other and open to the possibility that they are wrong, but hoping that they're not. But is their orientation substantially different, though? Because, you know, there's this analogy from a scholar who studied progressive school in the same neighborhood, she sees the classroom as reproducing state power, but in the hallway, there is, you know, the hallway is loud, it's disordered, but it's where people are rubbing shoulders and laughing and putting one foot in front of the other. And then the analogy there for the, the Christian community, you say, would be what, you know, church on Sunday morning. But church on Sunday morning, it seems to me, is... I mean, I haven't been to this church, but I would imagine that it's highly doxological. And it has that basic principle of, in the Protestant part of the liturgy, the doxology, that I think it's the Book of Common Prayer, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee, that it would only be in that movement of receptivity and regiving that the work in the Christian school, the work in the community would be happening. And so it's not ultimately ordered or even originally ordered towards the betterment or improvement of the neighborhood. That is just kind of the, the pathway by which the gift 
is regifted. That that would be that would be my very let's say optimistic account of what is happening. And I gather that you don't fully want to you don't fully want to integrate the political work of what's happening into the doxological work of of the Sunday service. Am I right about that? And, and if so, why? Yeah, that that's all right. What, I mean, what you described is what I called the proclamation or the primary key of Christianity is to proclaim this. As I said earlier, the proclamation evident in this community, what I call the you know, deep economy, is they seem to believe that justice is natural to the world and you only get there by leaning into the world. And so their modes of leaning into the world uh, look like the things that I just described. And if you look at how they give voice to it, it's, it's literal forms of singing, literal forms of worship. Those are reasons to go on. And insofar as those reasons connect into lives transformed because kids have access to education or money is redistributed, those are reasons to go on. But there are also reasons that cause despair or hopelessness or alienation or estrangement. And Christianity is this brazier's edge between hope and despair, right? To have hope without the witness of despair is often delusional, and to have just despair is masochistic. So it's this razor's edge, and I think that's where worship unfolds. It's the promise of something better, even though there's not a lot of material evidence that something better is actually going to turn out at the end of the day. What I say is that Afro-pessimism gives us a lot of reasons to give up, and what Christianity says is that you can't. And to be very careful about what it then means to proceed by taking seriously the Afro-pessimist witness, which I think is also a form of witness. So yeah, these are deeply tied into what theologically we had to commit to ours, what we believe if we believe the story I told earlier about God having created us out of gratuity. We are contingently existing, but God has ordered creation towards goodness, truth, and beauty. Then materially, your life is going to have to look a certain kind of way. We're saved people, then that's going to show itself now. And I think it looks like these people and other forms of Christian witness. Uh, but it's always going to be situated in a context of lots and lots of reasons for despair. Uh, the persistence of anti-Blackness in our society uh, is a reason for all this to despair. But so are ways in which the Black Christian tradition and Black life and Black dignity also are articulations for hope. And so how do we kind of take serious stake, I mean, take, take in fully as much as we can the reality of anti-Blackness, while also recognizing that Black people throughout histories of extraordinary anti-Blackness have shown some of our greatest forms of humanity, our greatest witness to humanity. And I think this church is something similar like that in the context of extraordinary forms of inequality and justice trying to reclaim humanity for others, but also for themselves. Jonathan Tran, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for having me. Beatrice Institute is supported in part by Henny Jewelers. Since 1887, Henny Jewelers has provided the Pittsburgh region and beyond with incredible engagement rings, fine jewelry, and luxury watches. Learn more at hennyjewelers.com. That's H-E-N-N-E jewelers.com. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. 
chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Oh,